Hi, my name is Jens. And my name is Kylie. You're listening to World Class Podcast. Did you like it, Kylie, the intro? Yeah, I thought it went really well. Did it go well enough for us to not make another take? No, I think it was good. Okay. Do you think it was good? I think it was good. <laughs> anyway, Kylie, there's a lot of smart people in the world, right? Yeah, a lot so of them, many. A lot of them write really smart academic papers. Mm-hmm. But when is the last time that you actually wrote <laughs> read one? Well, I've never written one. I know you're a little bit biased because you're actually studying at the university. But, you know, regular people, Yeah. they don't read a lot of academic papers, do they? No, 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 no. Not that I know of. Me neither. It might be because um, they are really, really boring. The people or the papers? <laughs> the papers. So, yeah. That's where we're trying to step in. We're trying to help help the uh, boring papers out a bit. Um, by introducing them to you in a way that's interesting and maybe hopefully funny. And at the end of the day, um, maybe makes you smarter. Kylie, wait a minute. Okay. I want to introduce you to something. Okay. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear that. That's the sound of you failing miserably at being interesting <laughs> in the radio. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so funny. I just am sweating a lot. Um, <laughs> okay. okay, so when I, so when we hear that buzz, we're we're being too boring. We have to start over. And That's true. We'll probably hear it a lot, especially today. Yeah. Because it's really boring stuff today. This is like the fundamentals of um of boring that we're going to break down and make interesting for you it's complicated it's complicated but we're gonna get through it together i hope so so the structure of this program kylie and you listener is that we have some hardcore academic topics usually presented in a paper um that we are going to a research paper a research paper yeah Mm -hmm. that we are going to talk about in an in a way that is hopefully easy to understand. Then after breaking it down, the theory or the theory, the, the research paper, mm-hmm. we will apply it to real world cases in order to kind of exemplify and ease the understanding even more. But before we go down that road, I think you have a word that you want to tell us about. Yeah, I do. Should I play the really cool? Play the jingle. Jingle. Yeah, play I'll play now. the jingle. Okay, the word I'm going to talk about today is discourse. It's an important word because often when we're talking about research, it's grounded in theory. And theories are usually talked about in a way that is described as a discourse. I guess official definition of discourse is a mode of organizing knowledge, ideas, or experience that is rooted in language and its concrete context. I think that's really hard to understand, so I just have to... (laughs) But more importantly... I think it's a way of describing or generalizing a topic in a way that's cohesive. So you could be talking about something and instead of having to refer to the details all the time, you're referring to a couple of good buzzwords that can sum up what you're trying to talk about and sort of encapsulate an entire idea of thought in a more simplified way. Okay. Do you get that? I'm not really sure. I think I kind of get it, but can you elaborate? Okay, so especially if you're going, if you're having a conversation with someone, Mm -hmm. so say you and I are talking about coffee, Mm -hmm. and we're both really into the way that the beans are roasted, and we go on and on about that, that's a discourse about one aspect of coffee that may be... The roasting. The roasting part of coffee. That's pretty general, but that maybe is totally missing another part of coffee, like who can afford to buy coffee. Or where is coffee grown? Okay. So sometimes you need to have discourses that are critical of other discourses so that it can give you a fuller picture of what's going on. Okay. And some discourses are more encapsulating of all these ideas of coffee than other discourses are. So one discourse could also just be to talk about coffee if you are in a cafe Mm -hmm. and you have coffee and tea and beer and all all a Mm -hmm. a lot of things in the cafe. And then yeah. just focusing on the coffee 
because that's what you came there to drink. Mm-hmm. That would be your discourse. discourse of the conversation at the counter Yeah. before buying. And especially it's important to take into account how you're describing the coffee. So if you're describing coffee as something that's this amazing life-giving drink, then that language is important in how you're talking about a thing. And that's really important when we're talking about discourses as well. Okay. So how does this translate into academic uh, so into the academic world? So when we're talking about the academic world and research papers, discourses come into account a lot because of the way that the author is framing their paper, whether that's on a certain theory or whether that's through certain language that they're using. Mm-hmm. Basically, language is important in a discourse because it frames who's speaking. It frames their perspective, where they've come from, what perspective on the world that they have. And that's how a discourse is made, through language. Mm-hmm through writing, through speaking. And that's why it's important to academic papers because when you're when we're learning about these research themes or these papers that we're going to be discussing, we have to understand that each author is coming from a different perspective and has a different, not only discourse about what they're discussing, but also discourse about how they view the world. Okay, today we're talking about international relations and four different ways of understanding what happens in between countries and why. Yeah. Each of these ways of understanding what happens is a theory that at some point some smart person or maybe some smart school of thinking came up with. Um, They all aim to do the same thing, but they do it in very different ways. Uh, What they aim to do is to provide some kind of perspective on why countries act like they do. Yeah, or leaders of those countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we can exemplify this by saying that international relations could, for example, be between uh, the United States and North Korea. That's a really obvious example in a way. Um, or the rising powers of China and Russia um, in relation to the United States. All these ways that sort of these big actors and these big headlines that you read about in the news, the way those are interacting and the reason why they're being talked about the way they are. Exactly. Um, All of these theories that we are going through today, they would be able to understand, uh, sorry, explain, but also understand actually (laughs) what happens uh, in the world. And the first theory is called realism. Oh, gosh. Here we go. Here we go. Okay, Jens, take it away. Yeah. I'll tell you a little bit about realism. It's the oldest theory um, that there is of the four. It's built on the assumption that states are the important actors. I was going to ask you what an actor is, though. Yeah, that's a good question. So you have states as actors. Actors are the ones with power in international relations. So if you are an actor, that means that you have the agency to actually make a change. Okay, so understanding states... Yeah. is the way to understand what happens internationally mm-hmm. if you are a realist. Okay. Realism is telling us that states are rational. So it should be possible to understand states because they will act rationally. There will not be something that is irrational. They'll always sort of act in the same way. Yeah. And this way is in order to survive and provide security. Okay. That's the two things that the state is concerned about, mm-hmm. according to realism. To okay. survive and to provide security. Yeah. That's interesting. Should I give an example? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have North Korea right now Mm -hmm. really boosting their nuclear program. Mm -hmm. And a realist would say that this is because they want to survive as a state. So the action of spending a lot of money on nuclear weapons is simply in order for the state to survive. But is there a reason why North Korea thinks they're threatened? Is there... Yeah, I mean, uh, very obviously, North Korea is uh, is isolated internationally mm-hmm. and not having any friends. Allies. Allies yeah. is kind of tough mm-hmm. nowadays. According to realism, all states are, in a way, alone. Right. Okay. It's kind of an anarchy, and every single state has to make sure that it will survive. So that's why they resort to these types of... Yeah, I mean, you can make the argument that the U.S. is actually doing the same. They're just better at it because they have the world's biggest military. And yeah. according to a realist, that would be a really mm-hmm. smart way of surviving. Yeah, um, by building up your military. Yeah, okay. and now North Korea is 
trying to do the same. But I mean, China is also doing it. They're also building yeah. their military. Okay. That was pretty good. Yeah. That wasn't too boring. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, did we cover the whole of uh, realism or is there anything else that we should... Uh, um, oh, well, I guess maybe where are its weaknesses or like, why is it not a full theory? Like where are its weaknesses? Where could it improve or what does it miss well as i said it is the oldest theory mm-hmm. and of course uh, old theories um have a habit of being replaced by newer theories yeah so liberalism is the second theory that we're going to be discussing it was sort of the reaction to the shortcomings that realism presented basically liberalism like jens was saying um one thing that realism forgets to really place emphasis on are institutions And that's where liberalism really steps in and where it's actually really easy to see in our world today because liberalism has been the sort of overarching way of thinking since probably the Cold War in the world. So liberalism really focuses on, they still focus on states as as really powerful actors like realism, but then they also really focus on the ability Instead of states always being at war with each other or only trying to survive and sort of being isolated islands, instead, from a liberalist perspective, there is room for states to cooperate and be at peace. So from a liberalist perspective, things like building up your military as a way to survive shouldn't be necessary because instead we should look for ways to cooperate and do that through trade Um, through economic interdependence and also through international institutions such as the UN that make it easier for states to communicate and agree on a common good. Okay, so just to clarify, mm-hmm. um, liberalists don't think that military should be built up or do they see that as kind of one institution um, among others or one one way of um, acting internationally among others? I think they see that as one way of acting because they do recognize that it has significance. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think a liberalist would ever ignore the fact that another country country was building up their military. But I think that they also, instead of placing just an emphasis on hard power, they place a big emphasis on soft power. Right, okay. So, so what's soft power? So soft power is actually a really good... Uh, way to relate to our word of the day, which is a discourse. Because right. soft power really takes place in language and in the rhetoric or the persuasion that states have over either other states or over world ideologies. For example, Justin Trudeau. He's the current prime minister of Canada, for all of those of you who don't know. He has great soft power in terms of promoting an idea of inclusion and peace. Because whenever he gives a speech, he uses the same way of talking. He is really sure to not isolate any other groups. And although Canada isn't the most powerful country, when Obama was in power in the States, his rhetoric of inclusion or of cooperation with the rest of the world has a lot of soft power by sort of inviting other states to come and join what they're mm-hmm. doing. Because they're the most powerful country in the world. They and that use... would be a very liberalist way exactly. of acting within the international system. Which actually really brings us to another big point about liberalism, which is that it goes hand in hand with the promotion of democracy. Uh So this is another reason why it really became the big theory after the Cold War, because that's when democracy had sort of triumphed at that point Mm -hmm. over the USSR, over other Eastern ways of organizing government. And so since liberalism's great rise, it's always sort of promoted the foundations or the values of democracy mainly mm-hmm. equal protection of the law freedom of speech and the ability to elect a leader of your country so this is sort of where liberalism gets critiqued actually from our next two theories that we'll talk about because it has an just undying belief in the power of democracy and for democracy to be able to work in all countries all over the world which we can talk about later isn't always the case One more thing, sorry, that I just have to, before we go too far, is that also when we're talking about states as actors and institutions as actors, if a realist just thinks that a state has succeeded when it has more power, a liberalist would disagree with that because liberalists also see the welfare and the well-being of individuals within a state as a measure of success. 
which is where democracy comes into play. So you can't just be the most powerful country in the world and have the biggest military and defeat all the other states and have succeeded if half of your population is starving or they don't have a voice. So bringing that into um, an example, uh, we could go back to North Korea again. And I would suppose that a realist would say that as soon as North Korea is being respected as an atomic power, they have succeeded. But a liberalist would say that, well, you're putting your people in concentration camps and they are dying of famine Mm -hmm. and you're spending your money on a nuclear program instead of on food. Yeah. And they would also say you have so much room for you have such 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 a great potential to cooperate with other states. Why wouldn't you want to help your people out by encouraging free trade or by taking part in international investment yeah. or in the UN, in an international institution that is based on the promotion of human rights? Why wouldn't you want to so be part of that? In a way, North Korea is the perfect example of a state acting out of realist ambitions mm-hmm. and the perfect example of a state completely ruining any <laughs> chance of acting <laughs> of out of a liberalist uh, perspective. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. I hope you understood it, dear listener. I think I'm going next. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we have two more theories mm-hmm. of international relations left to talk about. Mm-hmm. The first one was realism, which sees the world as total anarchy. The second one was liberalism, which thinks that there is chances of co- cooperation. cooperation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Our third theory is called constructivism. It's uh, a newer theory again. I this guess is a really. Say. This could be a really boring one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, as opposed to both realists and liberalists, constructivists don't really care so much about institutions or states. They acknowledge that institutions and states exist, but a state is just something temporary in a way. It can change. Mm -hmm. And the way that a state or an institution will change is by changing values or opinions in a way. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like the... the, Okay, yeah. So the the values or opinions of people who are sort of deciding that that's a state or have have defined it as a state. I mean, a constructivist sees a structure as something that kind of happens... Right. As a result of people having the same values and opinions. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, that makes sense. for example, the state will be a structure, but only as long as um, people agree that it will be. I mean, you can argue that... So, it sort of just contests the idea of what the other two theories thought were actors entirely. Yeah, because an actor is not something physical or something structural. An actor is actually an idea. Because ideas are, Creative. if you are if you are constructivist, then ideas are what actually changes things. Mm-hmm. So everything is kind of yeah. socially constructed in a way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, for sure. But how does this then? How does this make states act, or how does this relate to international relations? Well, <laughs> a constructivist would say that goals. And interests of states yep. are also socially uh, socially constructed mm, within okay. the states. So, okay. whereas a realist would say that all states have the same goals and interests, which mm-hmm. are security and well-being and survival mm-hmm. of the state, mm-hmm. a constructivist would not put this kind of um, limited right. scope on on states. They would sort of just question why those interests even exist in the first place or who made them in the first place and they will also be different i mean a constructivist would probably agree that most states are interested in surviving Mm -hmm. but as you can see with the with for example north korea Mm -hmm. um the well-being of the citizens Mm -hmm. is not a priority Mm -hmm. so the idea within the structure of the state in north korea is you know right now not yeah. The same as the idea within the structure of the state of a Western country, which mm-hmm. wants to... Which is based in, in values, basically. In, in other values, in a way. Yeah. Like in, in values of democratic peace, mm-hmm. which the liberalists think that all yeah. uh, states have. But as you can see with North Korea, that's not the case. So constructivism yeah. could be used to critique, yeah. you know, 
the idea that all states have the same goals. Yeah, and I th I think another example maybe also would be that constructivism now provides space for actors other than institutions and states to have a place, like, for example, terrorist groups. Yeah, I mean, one really obvious example would be ISIS, mm -hmm. because these uh, radicalized people, they are uh, kind of using um, religion mm -hmm. as an idea. Right, um, to sort of challenge the structure that they've seen. A lot of international relations, how do you say, academics, they agree that it's more about politics in a way what Islamic State is doing. It's not about religion. Mm -hmm. Because the idea of the Western countries mm -hmm. bashing everyone in the Middle East for so long yep. has made kind of a <clears throat> political idea of having your own space, having your own opinions, and having the agency mm -hmm. to do what you want mm -hmm. has made that idea attractive, which is why they want to create the caliphate. Yeah. Constructivism could be a good way of critiquing liberalism especially in terms of the promotion of democracy, because we've seen time and time again throughout history that the promotion of democracy in a lot of broken countries or a lot of countries that have had rough histories of colonialism or domination or oppression by Western countries has not worked. Yeah, And like so constructivism is sort of a way to say, hey, maybe this idea that you have has been constructed from your perspective and maybe it doesn't work with all other cultures or religions or you know ways of seeing the world like you said before when you talked about uh, liberalism mm -hmm. it was the theory after the end of the ussr and it thought that everyone would now follow one path which is mm -hmm. liberal democracy mm -hmm. but constructivists they say we can't really know Mm. everything about the world we can't really know anything about all the states because there are so many different opinions maybe we can't even predict like that no. far into the future okay we don't really know what's going on inside the head of putin or trump or mm. kim jong-un in uh, north korea we yeah. don't really know all their goals we don't really know yeah. all their opinions mm -hmm. and we don't really have the ability to predict the next idea within the public either and even donald trump is a really great example of constructivism because he's someone who was elected in a nation where people thought that type of a person would never be elected. Yeah, I mean, the whole... So he's actually challenged the idea of, like, all the values in the United States by just think kind of being outside the box, but just challenging the entire idea of what a president should do, how they should speak, how they should basically conduct themselves. That's totally true. And it's the same in Europe with the rise of the right wing. Um, mm -hmm. This idea, this notion mm -hmm. that makes people go and vote for parties that are that much to the right. Mm -hmm. This idea is what constructivists would look into if they had to analyze international relations because mm -hmm. inside Western Europe, all parties will work towards securing the state and will work towards, I hope, democratic peace mm -hmm. and will work towards the well-being of the citizens. Mm -hmm. But this limited scope of analyzing what the different parties are doing completely leaves out why suddenly so many mm -hmm. right-wing parties are being voted on. And so far, only constructivists would be able to explain that okay. by looking at the ideas. I think we actually did pretty good. Thank you very much. I think so too. <laughs> okay. It's going to be hard now, but we have to make a segue. So we have to yeah. somehow come up with something about constructivism. Okay, so the thing, well, does it have to be about constructivism? Because what I was going to say is that we haven't talked about money yet. Well, that's true. We need to talk about money. Yeah. Because when am I getting paid for this? Yeah. What else are we doing really in life if it's not to make money? <laughs> um, our next theory after realism, liberalism, and constructivism is it does exactly that. It is called international political economy. Okay. International political economy. It sounds sort of boring, but I think it's actually super interesting. So I'm going to do my best to break it down. Um, so international political economy is also relatively new, sort of came after realism and liberalism, and it is all about economics, all about the realm of economics, but not just economics. It's about how money is distributed around the world and how it allows some people or states to benefit and others to <laughs> not benefit or to be oppressed or to struggle. And... It's kind of hard to explain because it is based actually off of three different theories, but it's sort of something that you have to understand as being 
really multifaceted because there's lots of different ways that people can use the theory of international political economy to describe things. And I'm going to try and do that. Can we just call it IPE? Yeah. Because yeah. we'll call it IPE. That's easier. It's the acronym. So the main actors in IPE, as I've said before, are economics, money, and also states and also institutions, but maybe those not as the instigators of power or the ultimate holders of power, but just things that the economic realm affects and shapes. So IPE, people looking from an IP perspective at international relations would look at markets, economic classes, international trade, trade policies, and in foreign investment. So ways that money is being shuffled around the world, but also how that affects politics. So basically how the movement of money affects or shapes international politics. And I think that why IPE is so, why it's grown so much as a theory or why it has so much relevance now is because over history, the world has shifted from a more mercantilist Or What does that mean? Sorry. <laughs> We have to... Uh, I'm really sorry, Kylie. But So when we're talking about mercantilism, that was basically the economic theory of the... I think it was the 17th and 18th century. It could be 16th and 17th. I could be wrong. But it was sort of around the time that colonialism was happening. The British Empire was really big. And that was when people believed that there was a static amount of wealth in the world. So the way to get ahead was to have... A profit on your import and exports whereas that was sort of dying out when it when the idea happened that wow we can really utilize these resources around the world which was also something that became easier once we were able to have a better technology in terms of transport in terms of communication and that's just grown and grown and grown to a point now where over the last 30 or 40 years we've seen certain parts of the world benefit while other parts of the world haven't. And usually that's because of trading and imports and exports and how certain monies can make a lot of money off of cheap labor or cheap resources from other parts of the world. So can I ask a question? Yeah. This trade barrier that the European Union has, yeah, which prevents countries from mm -hmm. outside the European Union of trading on equal terms mm -hmm. with uh, countries inside the European Union, mm -hmm. could that be used as an argument for well, that's, why... Sorry. So, sorry, just... I think that that's something that if you were talking about the European Union and its international politics, that would be the first thing that someone looking at the situation from an IPE perspective would point to. So they would say it's not about these states trying to have greater military power than the rest of the world. They've simply made a trade policy or an economic theory that benefits them not to necessarily gain power or like I said, have a bigger military but so that they can have more money, which inevitably will put them off better in the end. It's sort of how an IPE theorist would look at it. So whereas another theory would maybe isolate economics from something that was important or something that was a shaping of, of politics, an IPE theorist would say, no, we can't separate politics from economics. They're interrelated. And I think a really good way of describing this is any sort of foreign direct investment So, for example, right what, now... Sorry, what's that? Foreign direct, foreign direct investment. investment. Or we could just say foreign investment. It's essentially when a country directs or invests directly in the infrastructure or the economy or the resource development in another country. So, currently, right now, we can see that really in Africa a lot with China. Uh -huh. They're doing a lot of foreign investment in certain parts of Africa. And... Looking at that from, well, sorry, when, from a liberalist point of view or a realist point of view or even a constructivist point of view, that investment is not important. That investment is not a huge actor. That investment does not have a lot of weight in terms of how a state will act or in terms of the relations between India and, or sorry, China and Africa. Maybe from a liberalist perspective, they would see that um, as just a nice form of international cooperation through trade. Mm -hmm. But from an IPE perspective, that relationship is critiqued by saying, oh, sure, there's a lot of investment here, but how is that benefiting either of these countries and who is getting the main profit from it? So currently, actually, China is investing in infrastructure in Africa, which sort of from, a, I guess, a basic 
point of view would you would think okay well that means that these countries are benefiting from this investment because they're getting infrastructure to be built yeah but from an ipe perspective you would look at that and think okay but how is this going to affect politics going forward and, and how is uh, what is china's thinking right exactly yeah why are they doing it why are they doing it and they're doing it because they will now have a extremely good relationship with these countries in africa they'll now have sort of it's almost like a pay it forward thing like we'll help you now but in the future you know we're we're expecting a lot in return or we have a big foothold here now because we have legal contracts we have evidence that we've invested in these countries we have strong relationships with their business people and their politicians. I guess you can also make it even more concrete and say that for example building roads that lead from an oil refinery and until an, a harbor that they are also building mm-hmm. will make it possible for China to import oil from Africa much easier. Yeah. And exactly. China is needing in need of a lot of oil mm-hmm. in order to fuel <laughs> their growth. Yeah. So Yeah. Them investing in infrastructure in Africa is actually a way of investing in their own growth because yeah. they have realized that mm-hmm. at a certain point they will need more resources that they have right now. Mm-hmm. And where do we get them cheap? We get them in Africa. Yeah. And I think that a really good thing that IPE takes into account is that when countries have strong trade agreements, they usually aren't at war. Like money is a good thing to keep people from fighting. For example, if you look at NAFTA or... Oh. What's NAFTA? The North American Free Trade <laughs> Agreement. I should just remember to define everything. I should mute you and then I should talk until uh, I have explained <laughs> it and then I should unmute you again. Okay. Actually, that would be funny. Um, <laughs> no, what is NAFTA? So NAFTA is the North American Free Trade Agreement between Mexico, Canada and the US. And because those countries have that agreement, from an IP perspective, you would think of that as a really important agreement in their international politics. Because if people are trading and making money off of each other, they won't go to war as easy. Or maybe they won't go to war as easy, but it's just a really important thing to take into account when you're looking at their international relations. Maybe it's not because they like each other or they really believe in each other or they really love each other's domestic policies. Maybe they get along because they know they can make money off of each other. Right. And I think that that's sort of the thread that a lot of the other theories don't take into account and which IPE does take into account. And... I just want to talk about one part of IPE that I think is is really interesting. And I mentioned it earlier that IPE has a lot of different theories that go into it or that sort of make it what it is. And one of these perspectives within IPE is a Marxist perspective. Mm -hmm. So a Marxist perspective looks at economic class, like I was saying before, and labor classes. And that's sort of been used in a lot of different research or a lot of different explanations of international relations to describe how certain countries have developed faster than other countries. And it's really important because when you look at the world today, you see a lot of countries profiting and certain economies emerging, but other countries staying the sort of at a stagnant level in terms of economy. And um, from the IP perspective, especially a Marxist IP perspective, they would look at that as sort of one area of the world being the West, exploiting other areas of the world. Is that what you could call the center-periphery thinking? Yeah. So the center would be the economic center, for example, maybe the United States. And the periphery would be all of the countries that they have investments in or that they get resources from or that they manufacture goods from mm-hmm. from in a cheap way and then are able to sell it in, back into the United States for a marked up price, but that money isn't going back to the periphery. So in a core and periphery model, the money stays in the center or the core and it does not reach the periphery. So what you're saying is that IPE um, scientists analyzing the political uh, structure would say that it's actually built in a way that benefits Western countries. Yes, yeah. Or the the way that free trade and international trade works is that there's always going to be a loser and there's always going to be a winner, but the winner is usually going to be, it's going to be the person that has the more, more money. And yeah, that the system has sort of designed itself around the furthering of Western countries. And I guess a critique, an IPE critique of the system would then be that countries benefiting would have no incentive of changing that. Um, so, right. so no matter how much Western countries want to promote democracy, 
like uh-huh. from a liberalist perspective, or they want to promote the social welfare of people elsewhere in the world, an IPE critique of that would be, would they be doing that if they weren't going to make money off of it in the end? Yeah. Or Who's... is it possible for certain countries to live the lifestyles that they want if everyone in the world was to be living at that same level? Or do we always sort of need these resource-rich but economically poor countries for countries in the West to succeed and to benefit, essentially. Right. Um, I would uh, suggest that we now go to explaining some uh, cases mm-hmm. of international relations yeah. using these four theories and maybe go a little bit more in-depth with each case. Okay, so we're going to talk about some cases, Jens. Why don't you go first? Because I just talked a lot. Yeah, okay. It's my turn. Um, I want to talk about something that happened in February mm. uh, this year. Okay. In the airport of Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, but Kim Jong-un, mm-hmm. the great supreme leader of North Korea, he actually um, used to have a half-brother called Kim Jong-nam. But... Kim Jong-nam was assassinated mm. in the airport using a nerve toxin. In, in Malaysia. In Malaysia, in okay. Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, a nerve toxin is just some kind of cream that you can apply to your skin, but you really shouldn't. Oh, because you die. Because you die. Okay. And that's what happened to Kim okay. Jong-nam. Um, so two girls, they snuck up behind Kim Jong-nam and applied this skin cream to his face. And 15 minutes later, he was dead. This nerve toxin, it's called VX, and it's classified as a weapon of mass destruction by the UN. Wow. Okay, so he was killed, and what now? The first thing that happens when this, with, when these kind of things happen is that countries react. Mm-hmm. And I think we should start out by having a realist uh, perspective on okay. the assassination. Okay. Because according to realists, Kim Jong-nam was a threat to the throne of Kim Jong-un because he's actually the rightful heir. He is older than Kim Jong-un and he's also descending from the same lineage as Kim Jong-il, the okay. the former leader. But he's just never expressed any interest in uh, ruling in North Korea and he was living in China. Uh, mm. And the propagandistic state media of North Korea has completely neglected his existence. Hmm. So realists would say that Kim Jong-nam was a threat to Kim Jong-un because mm-hmm. he was the rightful heir and if he would have taken the steps to be uh, come the leader or if Kim Jong-un would uh, would die, then Kim Jong-nam would be the person to look to. Mm-hmm. Um, so killing him was a way for the state of North Korea to secure mm-hmm. its own survival and it used force to do so. I mean, using a nerve toxin is a military um, it's a weapon of mass destruction. So <laughs> exactly. It's something. It's something really powerful. Okay, so that's realism. That's the realist perspective of of the case. Should yeah. We go so, I guess the next thing to do would be to look at it from a liberalist perspective. Right. And uh, if you remember, uh, liberalists they think that democratic peace internationally is possible, and they put emphasis on institutions as well as states. Uh, in attaining this. I do remember. Okay. So, liberalists, they would, of course, react by saying that it's a breach of international agreements to use weapons of mass destruction in Mm -hmm. an airport Mm -hmm. and, of course, also to assassinate a person. So, that would be the first reaction, Mm -hmm. that they would say, this is breaking international conventions. Okay. The UN, which is actually, you could say, the jewel of the liberalist <laughs> world because it's it really one is. institution containing almost all countries of the yeah. world. The UN have actually put forward a regulation banning exactly this substance that was used. That so was used, okay. it is a direct breach of mm-hmm. liberalist uh, practice. And values. Yeah. And values. Okay. The thing is that no one really knew who actually assassinated Kim Jong-nam. Everything points to an assassination conducted by the North Korean regime, but mm. it is actually not proven It's not pr- yet. It's still not proven. As we speak, there is a trial going on in Kuala Lumpur, 
And oh, okay. these two young girls who did the killing, they are being trialed for uh, as suspects of the murder. But um, I read a really interesting article arguing that they were actually not aware of what they were doing because hmm. they were tricked into doing so by North Korean agents. Oh my gosh. Um, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so dear Rita... Do look that up if you yeah. are interested in this killing. It's very fascinating. Yeah, um, that's interesting. But yeah, liberalists, they would, of course... So as of how the case stands now, liberalists are mostly concerned with the fact that it was a use of a banned substance. Yeah, well, or... they would also look at how it prevents democratic peace from happening because mm. what happened after the killing was that uh, the relation between North Korea and both China and mm. Malaysia, it uh, soured in a way. Malaysia, they were not really satisfied with uh, anyone using a weapons of mass destruction in, in the airport. And no one stepping up and taking responsibility mm, made right. them angry. And also probably concerned. Concerned too, yeah. 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 And actually, North Korea and Malaysia had a, re a relationship that was really good because mm. North Koreans were allowed to travel to Malaysia uh, without visa oh. and the other way around. Of course, right. only the elected few North Koreans who would be given a passport. <laughs> but able to go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so not, probably not everyone. But, but, still, but still, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, remittances, which mm. means that you send money back to the country where you're from. Um, remittances right. is a way of North, for North Koreans to make money because mm, okay. uh, North Korea is heavily sanctioned, which right. is a liberalist way of... Um, using soft power. Of using soft power. Yeah. Sanctions... Uh, is, for example, imposing trade barrier or yeah. saying that we will not... For example, China, what they did uh, actually after the assassination was that they said, we are not going to import coal anymore from North uh, Korea. Yeah, okay. And China did that because the US and other countries through the UN, which is a liberalist institution, mm -hmm. put pressure on China to say, look at this regime. They are using weapons of mass destruction in this airport. Mm -hmm. You cannot not react to this. So mm -hmm. China, they had to react. And what they did was that they imposed um, yeah. Um, sanctions. Yeah. So yeah, sanctions and remittances is a way for North Korea to still get money from other countries yeah. after sanctions are being uh, imposed yeah. by sending their citizens to work in other countries. Mm -hmm. But Malaysia, after the um, assassination, they... They changed the visum, uh, visa uh, regulations so North Koreans were not uh, allowed anymore to go mm -hmm. there to take a job and then subsequently to send money back. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that would also be a liberalist way of uh, reacting yeah. to say we are changing these laws yeah. because you are destabilizing the deep democratic peace and the security okay. within, our, um, within our country, I mean. That's liberalist. That was the that would be the liberalist that would reaction be the liberalist to what reaction. happened. Yeah. Okay. Then there would of course also be liberalist uh, solutions. But I think in terms of this incident, because there was not a clear actor, because North Korea didn't take responsibility, responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, there is it's not very easy to make a, a to apply solutions. Yeah, to apply solutions. So okay. all you can do is react. And yeah. say this is not okay and yeah. then you have the national ways of uh, and the only way we can really describe it or relate it to the theories is by describing the reactions and exactly. sort of what perspective they came from yeah because obviously this is a still this case is still ongoing so what the u.s did also just in terms of reaction yeah. uh, was that they said that they want north korea put back on their list of states sponsoring terrorism oh interesting so yeah um that was one case uh, kylie yeah. i think you have another case yeah, I do. So my case, we're gonna. I'm going to try to talk more about constructivism and IPE to help us understand those better with this case. And what I'm talking about actually also happened in February this year, or all January and February, but has been sort of ongoing throughout the year. And that is the deployment and buildup of NATO troops across uh, the Baltic states, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, or just Eastern Europe. And this is actually a pretty big deal because it's the biggest bolstering of NATO forces since the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a really big movement of this strong military power saddling up to Russia's border. So obviously, talking about this, it's, it's really easy to see it from a realist perspective. In actuality, it is a very realist reaction to the actions of Russia, which, to help understand the situation better... There has been pressure from the international community and especially from NATO member states to have more NATO troops 
into Eastern Europe and the Baltic states ever since the 2014 um, annexation of Crimea by Russia. Because this obviously made a lot of states surrounding Russia, or especially sharing borders with with Russia, very fearful that a similar thing would happen to them. Of course. So this pressure has been on NATO for years, I guess, up until this point. And then it finally happened earlier this year. And a big, I think, a big, um, not only just me, but a lot of experts also agree with this, that a big... Uh, motivation for this final deployment of NATO troops or this eventual deployment of NATO troops this year was because of especially Russian interference in Western elections and the increase of their, what a lot of experts call hybrid warfare. So an increase in cyber attacks and sort of being even more of a threat to the West um, and not just to Eastern Europe is what sort of finally made that pressure or made NATO succumb to that pressure. But in looking at this from like I said, um, a realist point of view, it's just very realist. There's two different militaries there exercising their military power right beside each other. So in order to sort of look at this from a different perspective that maybe you wouldn't have thought of before, I'll talk a bit about how it maybe is seen through a constructivist lens. So through a constructivist perspective, you can really especially see why or you can see how a constructivist would look look at this through the media. I think a constructivist would look at this this event through the media especially because the media is sort of what has built up these different sides to a point where it seems that there's no ability to cre- create peace. Right, okay. So I say that because it, in a lot of ways, although the annexation of Crimea was something that was physical and material and it was measurable, And while Russian cyber influence has been also material and measurable, a lot of the buildup and tension between NATO and Russia is just talk. A lot of it is the way these different sides are portrayed in the media, the words used to describe either side, and sort of kind of this description of this impending doom, but without a lot of concrete evidence or concrete things that have happened. So ever since this topic sort of was starting last fall or even last summer in terms of like when they were actually measuring or when people were actually talking about that NATO was going to start um, building up troops, if you look through the media and the events that have happened, really the only thing that have happened is that NATO sent a bunch of troops to the border. That was one big event. And more recently, there's been military exercises by either side. And Uh that's sort of it. But when reading the media, you get way more fearful. I mean, I have the idea that that we're going to be um, boarded by Russian troops any minute now. That's my notion because I've been reading the media. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that's all a lie? Well, I think that it is in a way because I think that the way that certain uh, media outlets have built this issue up has actually made it more difficult to see an alternative other than war, which actually might not really be the case. For example, I think a constructivist scholar would look at this and say, well, why are we fighting? What is it about these two sides that is so, so different that we can't find peace or that we can't? Would that be different ideas? Yeah, it would be different ideas. A liberalist would say it is because we have fundamentally different values. It's because we believe in democracy and Russia does not follow those patterns of democracy. Whereas a constructivist would say, okay, Maybe to an extent that's true, but how are we continuing to frame this relationship in a way that's detrimental to peace or detrimental to constantly painting either side as the enemy? So, for example, when you look at um, the deployment of NATO troops from Western media outlets, it describes it as something that is to maintain peace, that is a cooperative effort, that is in response to Russian aggression. That's all a liberalist way of reacting, right? Yeah, that's how the media the, has been framed. West, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. in a liberalist way. But if you're looking at it from a Russian perspective, they say the exact same thing, but opposite. So they say that the deployment of NATO troops is actually a sign of aggression from the West and that Russia doesn't deserve this type of a reaction. So that would be more of a realist way of framing it, I think. But from a constructive perspective, they look at both of those ways of framing the conflict and say, how is this 
going to lead towards how like how why has this discussion happened the way it has and maybe just question it in general and say is this really a healthy discussion or what has led to these two sides being so um, polarized and the reason why it is constructivist is because a liberalist or a realist or an IPE perspective wouldn't look at the media as a major actor. But I mean, you can also say that a liberalist or a realist would not acknowledge that this idea mm -hmm. could exist within the Russian like government or population, that it's actually the Western aggressions that are yeah. leading to this conflict, mm -hmm. because they would argue that it's just rhetorics or propaganda, but in mm -hmm. reality, the Russians would still be the ones being aggressive. Is that, is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at like the past three or four years, it has been Russia that's been more aggressive. They have been the one that have actually annexed another country's territory. Mm -hmm. But I guess from looking at this in a constructivist point of view, it's just sort of trying to shed light on the idea that maybe it isn't just the aggression that's the issue here, because that happened a few years ago. And yes, of course, it's still happening to certain countries around the Russian border. But on a greater level, has the way that the media has covered this sort of inflated the issue or really made it so that the only possible outcome is war. And I think a constructivist would argue that that's true and that in that case, looking at the media and how it's framed this topic is an important thing to do instead of just looking at state actors or institutions. Anyways, so that's sort of my case. I hope that you learned something. I definitely that. did. I or if it feel was, was it interesting? I think it was interesting, yeah, but I'm <laughs> I'm biased, you know, I have to think so, but uh, <laughs> I think so. We're trying to sell it. Yeah. So because we didn't die, yeah. And because we feel like it was kind of a success, mm -hmm. I guess we can see um, say say so long. So long. Farewell. We will be back. We will, we will be back. And there will be more academic topics to cover and more nerds to help communicate <laughs> their knowledge and we will get smarter hopefully okay hopefully. thank you for listening thank you for listening in and danish we have this uh we saying, hope that you tune in next time that's what a canadian would say okay i think we should say that because we only have like we'll be listening like you i don't even know how to translate that it's like what in danish to, to english yeah like the danish one is uh just say it in danish Vi høres ved. Okay. It's like talk to you soon, but just you will listen to me soon. But that's kind of weird to oh, say. Oh wow, nice. But I guess we'll say that you'll listen to me soon. <laughs> you'll listen to us soon. <laughs>